Hola, I'm Elias Torres, co-founder and CTO of Drift. You are listening to the American Dream Podcast. Did you know that Drift is part of just 2% of VC-backed startups led by Latin American founders? Well, I'm on a mission to change that. On this show, you will hear from leaders who have achieved their own version of the American Dream. We'll talk about what the process looked like to get there, the obstacles they faced along the way, and the work we still have to do to build a new face of a diverse corporate America. Bienvenidos a todos. Today I'm excited to have Mario Ruiz on the podcast. Mario is the co-founder and partner of Infinity Ventures, a venture firm focused on fintech and commerce infrastructure investment. In this episode, Mario is going to tell us about how he found this career in investing and his thoughts on diversity in VC. So let's get right into it. Welcome, Mario. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we have so many people in common. We have good friends, Bilotti, Terrence. I'm really glad to finally meet you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, right? You're a Latino, Guatemalan, uh, Guatemaltecos, parents, Puerto Ricans, right? In New York, in the Bronx. Amazing, right? Latino in, in New York City. And you come out of there, really tough place, right? And you come and now you have your own VC firm. I mean, this is incredible. Tell us a little bit about that journey. And I want to ask you more questions about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's just, as you mentioned, so born and raised in the Bronx, in Co-op City to be exact. And so my mom's from Guatemala. I came to this country in the 80s, undocumented to this country. Started off in Queens, New York, then moved over to the Bronx, uh, where she met my dad. And so my dad originally from Puerto Rico. And I think my upbringing was kind of quintessential, you know, kid from the Bronx growing up. Low income, didn't really have much, but had a lot of community and culture around me. And I think in particular, you know, growing up in the Bronx, it just taught me a lot of lessons about life and the people you meet. And I think those are the lessons that I kind of took with me in my career and as I th thought about investing. And I think for me, you know, come, uh, with the family I, I have and growing up in the Bronx, the, the lesson I have was just like, it's a very much a close-knit community. And I grew up with, you know, those who were, from the, were either white, from the African-American community, from the Caribbean. Obviously, a lot of Latinos as well. And, and that really, for me, was like that melting pot experience for me that I really bring to, to venture as well today in those experiences. That is very special, right? To like how many VCs come from Co-op City? Co-op City is like you drive it, right? When you're going from Boston to New York in those big buildings, that's Co-op City, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. So it's basically the, the last part of the Bronx you see before you go into Westchester. Into Westchester, which what a difference, right? So tell me a little bit about like, what were some of the major breakthroughs, right? You were like in Co-op City, I don't know what school is like there, must be tough. And then you like, tell me a little bit about what's it through school that you broke into it? Was it through, you know, fintech banks, investment banks, stuff like that? Tell me a little bit of the journey, how people like, the people, they're always curious, right? Like, how did he do it, right? So for me, you know, I'll talk about the fintech side and why fintech matters a lot to me. But I would say like the, from a career path perspective, I always say it was a lot of luck. And so I went to public schools my entire life. I went to a public high school in the Bronx called Harriet Truman. And Harriet Truman was not a glamorous place. It was like seven stories high, had metal detectors. It was actually like a prison cell in my school when I was growing up. And so a pretty rough place to kind of go to school. But I think for me, I was always like very studious. My mom and my dad always kind of instilled in me and my brother that school was really important. And I think partly for me, it was like, I was also a very curious kid growing up. I think curiosity was something that was always key for me. And so my really, my breakthrough in, from my career was actually happened my senior year of high school. And so I met a benefactor to my high school. His name was Sid Goodfriend, who was actually 
a managing director at an investment bank in New York called Credit Suisse. And Henry, I was instead kind of came over, would meet with me and some other students at the school. And I kind of point blank, blank asked him one day, like, hey, would it be possible to intern at Credit Suisse uh, for the summer after I graduated high school? Did not expect a response, but like three weeks later, he got back to me and connected me with his executive assistant and said, hey, we have a position here for you for the summer. It was not a glamorous summer. That year, I was literally cleaning papers, uh, cleaning tables, archiving papers, cleaning deal toys. But it was that first initial opportunity for me really to break through in my career and have a brand name on my resume, which really helped to support me. And so that was kind of my first foray and kind of insight into investment banking and career in finance. And so every summer after that, I kind of continued to, to nudge and bother the folks at Credit Suisse to say, hey, can I spend another summer here? Can I spend another summer here? Until eventually my junior year, actually, I interned in a kind of more traditional investment banking internship, which for me was like that breakthrough moment for me to actually start my career in finance. And so as you alluded to, so I started my career in investment banking back in 2010 at Barclays in New York. And so starting in the financial services group and kind of tying back a little bit to my childhood, why finance and, and financial services was always important for me is because, you know, I personally think that one of the hardest lessons for someone growing up poor in this country is not knowing actually how to, to manage your finances. And although I started my career in investment banking, was working on, you know, on Wall Street, I was still using my debit card, didn't have any credit cards. I was you know, very resistant to taking out debt because of, of some of the, I think, childhood experiences that my family saw when I was growing up. And for me, I felt very much like this imposter of like working as glamorous investment bank, covering financial services companies, but at the same time, you know, really uneducated, unsophisticated with my own finances. And so like, you know, circling back now, 10 plus years later, I think FinTech really is kind of that impetus and way to drive democratization of financial services for communities like the ones I grew up in as well. And so I'm super excited about what we're doing with Affinity today. Yeah, no, that's, I'm still touched by that moment, right? By this mentor, by this role model. And, and by the way, you know, selfishly, that's why I, you know, I'm not a big podcast guy. Like this is not like, I don't know what my thing is anymore, but it's like hearing those stories. What I'm looking for is like, how can I help Latinos, right? Blacks underrepresented achieve their own version of the American dream, right? And so like you have achieved, you know, sometimes I say there's not one American dream. Like we have, you know, different levels that we go. Like sometimes it's just like, I just want a house, right? Like I just want a job. You know, it's like, it starts with basics. Now you have a VC firm, but that moment trying to figure out how to help in that moment, which you just said is such a great lesson. This person came and was helping and mentoring at the high school, right? And he exposed himself, right? To be like, for that question that you asked. And you had that, you know, that courage, that boldness at that moment to just say it and ask it, right? And that's said, we need to encourage kids, right? And we need to be there in the schools to tell the kids, take the shot, right? Go for it. What's the worst thing they're going to do? They're going to say no. But in your case, they say yes. And you, that person saying yes, that person... You know, how many people do not respond to a LinkedIn message? How many, including me, right? It's like, how many people just don't have the time or like, they're not going to go put their wrist. They're not going to bring this person that doesn't know anything in high school. Like, that's like, that's not normal, right? It's like, you know what? People that have a white network, very, a lot of power and influence can make that happen. They took a shot with you and say like, who is this kid? And that changed the entire trajectory of your life. 100%. And I think for me, it was, it's a lot about confidence. And I think for myself and a lot of folks who grew up in Latino and, and you know, Black and African American communities, there may be this like either imposter syndrome or feeling like I don't have the confidence to actually say 
and ask the question. But to your point, so many other communities out there, not that they're emboldened, but they have the confidence to actually step up and ask the question of, you know, raising their hand and asking for something and, and, you know, making room for themselves. And I think us as a community, we also need to make room for ourselves in these spaces to say that, hey, we're here, we want things and, and we're going to, you know, work hard to, to get them. But also we need help and support to get there as well. Yeah. So we're talking about, right, how your experience, right, is something that it's valuable both economically and, and socially, right, to the VC world, right? V, you know, VC is extremely important, right? They hold a lot of power because that's that's the money that fuels entrepreneurship, right? And entrepreneurship is one of the key ways that underrepresented people can break out of poverty, right? And we can distribute the wealth better if we have more people like us succeed, right? And so, like, the experience, tell me about, about growing up with so little, right? How is that valuable in fintech, right? To be able to both make money and help everybody else, you know, learn how to use their money better, right? No, absolutely. And as I was mentioning, I think for me, you know, one of the most important things for me growing up was actually growing up on food stamps and not having money. Because I think there's a scarcity of not having financial services and, and not understanding how to manage your money that just makes you more alert of how you're actually behaving on a day-to-day basis and saving money and thinking about paycheck to paycheck. And I think about my job as a VC and investing in fintech is how are we investing either infrastructure or new companies that are actually helping to democratize that access. And so that folks, you know, aren't necessarily worrying about how to think about the day-to-day paycheck, but now we're thinking about ways to actually unlock wealth. And whether that be through savings or through investing, but now with the advent of actually fintech, there's so many new ways where people actually make and save money that I think it, it just unlocks a whole opportunity for underrepresented communities actually to build wealth going forward. And I also think a part of this too is, you know, one of the things for me growing up, because I grew up low income was just to your point, like being an entrepreneur and having that hustle and having that drive early on to make money. And I think that one of the kind of silver linings of COVID over the past couple of years is seeing so many people become entrepreneurs online, whether they be through social media, you know, having side hustles. And for me, that was a big way growing up of how actually I paid for college, which was, you know, starting an online reselling business. And, you know, that's how I paid for college. And I think today we're seeing so many kids do that today, whether it be doing the same thing and selling on either StockX or Go or, you know, even being in school and sell, you know, selling Pringles cans or finding ways to make extra money. And I think that we just have to increase that excitement and that drive for Black Latino communities to be like, hey, you could be entrepreneurs. You could take that leap and that jump and start your own business. And you have the confidence and you have the support to do so. But I definitely agree with you. Like that capital is the part that's missing. And I think for me as a venture capitalist, I'm highly aware that like that's where I have a lot of power. And I want to make sure that I'm helping communities like mine actually have access to this capital so they can grow their business and have an equal shot, you know, starting million dollar companies, billion dollar companies and really building generational wealth. That is something that, you know, I'm constantly learning, right? And and to be frank, sometimes I do not know what to encourage. You know what I mean? Like, it's like how to be an encourager, how to be a promoter, right? I like what you just said. Like, you started a sneaker business, right? And it's like, sometimes it's like, is that the right thing, right? And how does that translate? My business, I sold mangoes on the street. <laughs> it's like, so like, you know, should we encourage someone selling mangoes? So we say encourage someone selling sneakers, right? Because there are people playing, you know, companies and startups at a whole nother level, right? There's like, I don't know, I'm assuming there's like kids in, t- in, in high school now starting their own VC funds, you know, through their parents. 
how do we encourage you? Do you have any insight into that and like encourage entrepreneurship in for your piece, right? Yeah, I think for me, it's like, it's also highlighting the lessons learned from that entrepreneurial experience. Like for me, I did it because it was a way for me to make money and save money to pay for school. But like the lessons I learned from actually selling sneakers are things I still use today. It's all about like customer service. It's understanding how to, you know, operationalize and manage a process because like over some weekends, I was like selling 30 to 50 pairs of sneakers out of my mom's house. And so for me, I needed to operationalize a process and have things, you know, done in a way so that I could do this on the weekend, but still do my homework and still have fun with my friends all on the same weekend. And then it also, you know, showed me the value of actually saving the money and investing my money and betting on myself as well. And so for me, I always viewed like actually reselling shoes as like better than venture capital in a lot of ways, because I would go on a weekend, buy a hundred pair, hundred dollar pair of shoes, sell it for $300. And like if the sticker never sold, I could just go back to the store and return it. And so like it was in some ways like riskless venture capital in that sense. But for me, it just took that first couple of pairs of sneakers and saving up money to like actually get that first pair. And then from there on, it just I get hooked on it. It was like this adrenaline rush of, you know, going out there, waiting in line, buying whatever hottest sneaker was out there and saving that money and stacking it to the point where I was able to actually pay for my college education. But like, I had so many lessons learned through that experience and that are things that I still bring with me today and having my own venture capital firm and, you know, working with entrepreneurs who also are, are very young in their career and are also, you know, going through, through perhaps some pitfalls that I saw when I was young as well. I think you just said something very important, right? Which is what I want. Like, it's like, we have to be able to dissect all the different components of entrepreneurship, right? And be able to, to encourage kids that are trying ventures that have those components, right? Like you said, selling, operationalizing, like shipping, learning about how to use your money, how do you grow the business, how do you do customer service, right? How do you do marketing? How do you do negotiation? How do you do pricing, right? Whether you're selling mangoes, whether you're selling sneakers, you get to learn a lot of that, right? That a lot of people don't even have a clue of how it works, right? But because it's much different when you're actually living it, right? That's incredible. So tell me a little bit, what are some of the great stories with the sneakers? Were you scared some weekends you were losing money? Or to make it big, would you want to start another business? There's some big businesses out there. Yeah, no. Nowadays, like it's a humongous industry, and obviously with like StockX and Goat and Grailed and so many other platforms out there, there's kids these days can make a lot of money reselling sneakers. But for me, you know, I think the two lessons learned were kind of maybe not the glamorous parts. Where one, just like cold days, like growing up in the Bronx, it was you know be ten degree weather outside and waiting in line at my local sneaker store to like buy the newest release sneaker and it could be quite dangerous. You never know if someone's trying to rob you or, you know, what's going to happen in the front of the line. If, are people going to bum rush the store? If they're trying to get ahead of you. And so there's always this alertness that I had of whenever I was in line of just, you know, how am I going to just make sure I get out of there safely and back to my house and, you know, be able to then get back on my computer and sell these shoes as quick as possible. I think for me, that was like the biggest worry for me uh, while I was going through the business. But over time, when I learned it, it was really just about connections and community. Like when I was in those lines, there were so many people that I met who were, you know, had the same hustle, same drive that I had, which were, they were just out there to make an extra buck and find a way to be entrepreneurs on their own. And so we would just like build community out there and, and wait in line together and help each other whenever we can because we realized like we're all in this together. And so I think that was for me was one of the bright sides of doing this, which is it was so many people that I met that just had so much hustle and drive. And I see this a lot in the kids these days who are doing this online as well. Like I'll, I'll see a line in front of a Full Locker or a Nike Town 
and just a bunch of kids who are probably like 15, 16 years old. And like, this is for them is a way to, you know, pay for food or pay for college or whatever it may be. And I think that hustle and that determination is things that we just continue to encourage in kids these days. Love that. Love that. Right. Is that these are the stories that just keep me moving about like the ways that we can like bring equity into the system. Right. Is that that hustle and the immigrant and the poor, we got to encourage it. We got to advertise it more and we got to let know people that you can never give up right on the dream. And which is kind of like how you went from from the sneaker business into, you know, how do you switch from that? You went to Credit Suisse. But how'd you go into investment banking after that? You said, um, was it, I heard it was something about an organization called SEO. That's correct. So I did a program called Sponsored for Educational Opportunity or SEO when I was a junior in college. And for me, SEO for me was life-changing because it dropped game to me and dropped knowledge for me of like how to actually succeed in this career. Because like, again, coming from the Bronx, I always tell the story. I remember like my first day of training at SEO, I had my investment banking internship. I came to the job with a bright blue turquoise button-up shirt to the job. And then someone from the organization pulled me to the side and was like saying, hey, you know, this may work for you in, you know, in a Latino Puerto Rican household, but um, that's not going to fly in, in a kind of white shoe environment like an investment bank. And so I remember after that day, I ended up going to a store and buying 10 white button-down shirts and wore the same outfit every single day for my internship. But I think what it taught me was really how to kind of not necessarily assimilate, but like how to adapt to these these communities and these places that one, I'm not familiar with, but two, that I'm not accustomed to. And so it gave me the, that toolkit and really the resources around me of, not, of how to really do well that summer. I was at Barclays via SEO and helped me succeed. So I, I got the full-time offer. And so SEO is all about how to actually convert students of you know, having these investment banking internships and converting it to that full-time offer and kind of dropping that knowledge and pearls of wisdom of how to actually succeed in your career. So amazing story, right, about sponsors for educational opportunity, something that we should all, you know, share with others, right, with, especially with kids in high school, right, and, and to, to look at these opportunities, like for mine was inroads, and there's so many more. We need to talk about them more. We need to fund them, right? We need to support them. They're nonprofits and connect the kids with them because that's a great path for opportunities that are there, right? They're waiting for the kids to make their choice. Sometimes the kids don't even know it, right? So we go from that to you go into investment banking and what did you see there that made you say, I'm going to start my own, right? What was like, what was the most impactful thing that you saw that said, I got to do it myself? Yeah. I think the thing for me was you seeing the confidence and privilege that folks were coming to that I was working with. And if, for example, one of the people I actually worked with the most was actually the son of a Supreme Court of Justice. And so for me, you know, seeing someone who really grew up in that type of household and that environment of, you know, in a more a lot more privilege of the society that I grew up in the in the Bronx. And for me, there was just a different level of confidence and bravado that they carried with themselves and think willing to take risk. And that for me was like the biggest life changing moment for me was that risk isn't a bad thing. You should take risks in your life and that those risks that you could take can actually help catapult your career as, as high as possible. Because I grew up in a household with my mom who was always like, you know, just put your head down, do good work and you know, you'll get promoted in your job and kind of go step by step. But really the way that you build wealth is taking risk. And for me, you know, starting Infinity Ventures for me was taking a risk and betting on myself that, hey, I'm not going to take a step function part of my career, but I'm going to take a bet so that I can bet on myself and hopefully you know, build generational wealth for not only myself and my family, but also the communities around me as well. That's amazing. I mean, that's that, what a speech you just dropped there, right? I, that I think I get in the goosebumps because 
it's like you're doing like I mean, there's a whole study that could be you know done on risk, right? I like that risk is good, risk is not bad, and it's amazing how well the more you have, risk is bad, right? If you're going to lose your money, right? The difference is what happens is when these people are not losing their money, right? So risk is not a big deal because they have a cushion back home. The problem with us and our families and Latinos and the advice, I remember my mother is like, don't go start drift, right? Elias, you're successful. You sold a company. This company is going to go public. Why are you going to start another company? It's enough, you know? And it's like, if I hadn't done that, right, I wouldn't have created an opportunity for hundreds of employees to build their own wealth and to boost their careers, right? And to make an impact in, in the United States and even abroad. Now we have an office in Mexico. It's just like, I love that you, how do we encourage that? And how do we help people overcome that risk is not bad, risk is good? What do you think? What else can we say to people? Yeah, I think it's like, how do you take measured risk, right? And I think for you, you to your point, you mentioned before, you, you had inroads, which taught you a lot. And then you had 10 years of your career that you've, you know, was probably a little bit less risky, right? You, you worked at a corporation, you worked at a company, you, you got a paycheck, but over time, I'm sure you kind of start that risk aperture started to increase a little bit more because you realize that I have a bit more in savings, I could do a little bit more. And I think about, you know, for kids these days who are growing up who want to be entrepreneurs, like start selling sneakers, start selling mongos, like start doing something that is risky, but it also have valuable lessons attached to it as well. Because I think for me, having started that sneaker business so early on in my life, taught me that, hey, I could put my money at risk, but at the same time, like there's really rewards I could see from it as well. And now like being on the venture capital side, like that's exactly my job, right? It's taking on risk, it's investing in companies, but also betting on people and their dreams. And I think for me, that's the pride I have in, in venture capital is that I'm investing my, you know, my money, but also our, our limited partners money and helping bet on people's dreams. And so whether it be that, you know, Latino who grew up in Nicaragua and then grew up in the U.S. who's still selling mangos or someone else who perhaps had a different way of life. But it's that still entrepreneurial like, spirit and dream that a lot of folks have. And I think that's what the pride I have in venture capital is like helping actually sell those, those dreams so people actually go from zero to one and, and hopefully build generational wealth for themselves and their communities. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, generational wealth is something that we don't talk about it enough. I did not know that, what, that it even existed, right? I was like... My hope is like you get a job, you get a salary enough that you can buy the house that you want and you just make payments on it, right? It's like, that's like, that's my American dream before that. They not understand what generational wealth. And so it's like kind of like a thing that I don't hear, you know, people that are white that have grown up with it or that know how to get it, right? Or build it. They don't, I don't hear them talking about it to me, right? But I think we need to teach our generations about it, right? And not only you describe risk as being good, but the point is that we have to go from just having a job to taking the bigger leaps, right? I left HubSpot and I left a lot on the table. I mean, the HubSpot went from 20 bucks to $800, right? It's like, I took a big risk, right? But I am much better set up right now to influence and inspire the new generation of Latinos and Blacks to be entrepreneurs than I would have been if I just stayed at HubSpot, right? And so it's not about the money, right? But it's about taking that risk to accomplish what you want, right? And so like, I love that. I love that. And so tell me one of the risks associated with starting your own firm, like that people would be like, I don't want to do it. Yeah. I mean, oh, there's a few things. One is 
there's the capital part. And so it takes money to raise money. And I think for a lot of people who aren't familiar with like venture capital and raising a fund, there's typically a like one to 3% of the fund you raise, you have to put into your personal money as well. And so in order to actually raise a fund, you actually have to have some wealth created yourself to actually you know contribute as part alongside your limited partners. And so for a lot of folks, that's like a non-starter because they don't have you know the savings or the wealth created to actually take that first step, which is a huge barrier of why I think there are so few Black Latino venture capitalists out there who own a you know own a part of a firm and are general partners because it actually does require money. I would say second is you know time. The average first time fund takes anywhere between twelve to eighteen months to raise their first fund, and that's a period of time where you're not taking a salary, you're living off savings. And that is a big risk for a lot of people who, again, if they don't have the financial means, it's just a non-starter for them. And I would say the third part, which I think doesn't isn't talked about enough, is like raising a fund and like raising venture capital could also be confidence draining. You get a lot of no's. And I know you as an entrepreneur and having raised venture capital yourself, like you get a lot of no's from venture capitalists yourself. But on our side, also raising capital and raising a fund, we've received a lot of no's from limited partners. And that could be a little bit of a hit to your ego and your confidence. And it's really required for you to like pull yourself up and like readjust yourself and have that next next conversation because you need to you know that you kind of you have a goal in mind and you need to get there. And you know, for me, it was a really hard process of like raising a fund. I was very lucky and I did it with two partners alongside me. So I had a support system with me and I supported them as well. But for a lot of like first time fund managers who are going out there on their own, like it could be really draining to go out there and speak to these large institutional investors and keep hearing no, 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 and still you know, wake up the next morning, you know, put a smile on your face and kind of repitch your story again. And so I would say that's something that I think isn't talked about enough that I think particularly for those in like Black Latino communities, like that could be confidence draining and it could also create this, you know, foster this feeling of imposter syndrome. And you need to like adjust to that and, and, and help support one another to kind of get over to the next step. Absolutely. I mean, it's draining because you're like, you know, it's like sometimes you, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, you're like, I build a business, I have revenue, I have customers, I have a brand, I have this. Why do they say no? Why do they say no? Is it about me? What, you know, you're never going to get that answer, right? Then you're never going to get that feedback. And you are out there and you're just saying, I'm starting a fund, give me millions of dollars, right? Put in, put in a large check and you pitch and they say no and they say no. And you're like, it's like there is no product to offer them until 10 years later, right? And so it's like, what do you base that? What feedback do you get to be able to keep going and going and going, right? It's mind-blowing, right? And I think for me, it's all about that community aspect. And I'm sure you have this yourself with, with starting Drift and like other entrepreneurs who did it themselves. And although there are a few Black Latino founders and, and investors, like we need to support one another and teach those lessons learned. Because to your point, like there's so many other communities out there that have hundreds of thousands of people in that same field. That are helping to support them and drop that knowledge, and so we have to do that that same thing and reciprocate that because the lessons learned that I learned in fundraising, I'm trying to find any Black Latino VC who's out there raising fund and like get telling them about my experience because these are things that you know should be passed on from you know from person to person and from fund to fund so that those lessons learned are things that you know are mistakes that aren't still happening twice. Yeah, someday maybe I call you and say, teach me how do you do it. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out like what you know what are the things. What do we need more out there, right? It's like I'm in a group of Latino uh, entrepreneurs, operators, right? And, and we have a goal of like, let's get 40 unicorns, you know, by 2040 that are Latino founded, right? But it seems that the next frontier is like, how many VC firms that are Latino, you know, GPs, right? That we can get to lead and to be able to write checks. 
into people like us, right? I feel like that's like the next frontier. What do you think we should be spending our time in to be able to yeah, break the uh, bring equity, right? Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think about it as both capital and connections. And so on the capital side, it's, you know, this, on my side, you know, we, I also am part of like La Familia, VC Familia and, and Latinx VC and, and helping support folks who want to break that barrier and, and become either GPs themselves at their own fund or join, you know, the blue chip tier one funds out there that like the lights be is A16Zs. Because once we have those folks in positions of power and of positions of influence and we can write check and make decisions, that's when we'll start seeing the tide turn of having more folks like myself and other folks out there who are actually making decisions and investing in, in Black Latino founders. And so I think the capital side is going to take some time, but I think there's a lot of community that's being built to help support that. And on the connection side, like the thing I always think about is like the reason why there's so many unicorns that kind of come out of Stanford is because like it's all about that close knit connections and community that they have in Silicon Valley and on Sand Hill Road. And how can we help our Latino founders in getting connections to like other corporates and having conversations with other founders who have been successful, like hearing that knowledge and hearing how they were able to, to make it, I think are all big learnings that could help these founders really know what the playbook is. Because right now, a lot of people are operating without a playbook and are kind of blindly in the blind in some ways. And so it's folks like yourselves who I think are really helping support these entrepreneurs who are, are starting out from day one so that they have at least some playbooks to play to work with. So they could start to raise that early stage venture capital. They could get their first customer. How do they, do they go to market? How do they then raise growth funding? But kind of help them step by step so that each step is de-risk because they have someone behind them and helping them who has done it before. And so I think it's really both sides. It's both the VCs with the capital side, but also the entrepreneurs who really bring the connections and also the, the knowledge of how to actually do it and, and build the company. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, there's a lot to talk about this. It's just something I think about is like, how do we, a lot of people just want overnight success, right? And and they want to go from like, you know, from co-op city straight into starting your own VC firm. And there's a path, there's a journey. You have to earn experience. I'm a big believer in that. I, I don't, it's not for equity, for equity's sake, right? But you did PayPal Ventures, right? Before you did your own, right? And so it's it's good to go learn it and to build the connections and to understand how it's done and how the system works. But then you made that very pivotal decision, right? Which I'm very, very familiar with, which is like, I'm going to take the risk and do it myself and believe in myself, no matter if I fail or not, but you're going to learn. We have to coach people, right? I feel sometimes I feel like people want to go really big and they don't have the experience. And so I feel like I kind of want some people that have been doing some building blocks, right? To get to starting a company. What do you think about that? Should we be encouraging everybody from the very beginning or handpicking the people with build up some experience? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think for me, and I think about this on the venture side too, which is like, I have a lot of people who either want to break into venture or perhaps are early on in their career in venture and like want to become a general partner at a fund, you know, in two years. And, you know, that doesn't happen. You know, it isn't overnight success by any means. And I think for me, the people that I end up wanting to support and mentor and sponsor the folks who, have proven to me that they've taken those steps, that they've gone out there, have done their homework, have done their research, and have come to me saying, hey, I've done all these things. And like now I'm at a point that I need some help and support. And can you help me from here? Whereas I think to your point, like there are some folks who have come to me and saying, hey, you know, I want to break into venture, but they really haven't done their homework. They really haven't really put in that work in, in the early stages to kind of show that this is something they want to do longer term. I, for me, just, I want to see a little bit of commitment there. And I'm sure you've kind of seen this on the founder side of like, Hey, is this something you're serious about? Yeah. And like, have you done the work? And like, is this something a leap you want to take? 
at that point, like happy to kind of throw the gauntlet at you and help you kind of, you know, pursue your dreams, but like wanting to see some, you know, some, something proven in the beginning is something that's important to me as well. And I think that, you know, the way that you started your career, you know, working at IBM and then HubSpot and, you know, obviously going out to Drift, like learning from other people is really important. Like, you know, it could be a little bit of an ego hit of like, hey, I'm working at a corporation and taking a salary, but like those are where like you build connections, you learn the ropes and you kind of like learn the internal like groundwork of actually how to build a company, right? Because HubSpot was a, a smallish company when you started. Now, obviously, it's, it's massive. You join a company like IBM, which was massive when you joined it. And you kind of like learn the politics, you learn the system. And now when like, you have your own company, you kind of know that framework of how to actually build a culture, build a community and build a company that's sustainable. And so like having those experiences are really valuable. And when you're starting your own thing of knowing how someone else has done it, perhaps how you would tweak things and do things your own. Tell us a little bit, wrap up with Infinite Ventures, right? How much did you raise? What stage are you in? How many companies? you know, what kind of people should reach out to you, right? Looking for funding. Yeah. And so uh, Affinity Ventures is a kind of quick overview of us. And so we're a $158 million early stage venture fund, really focused on everything from pre-seed to series A, all within fintech and commerce enablement. And so to categorize that as, you know, anything that's really building within the infrastructure of fintech, but also thinking about how people are buying and selling online. And so we're building, really investing in kind of the builders. And that's like our vision and our dream is to feel like find people who are building really that infrastructure. So then, 5, 10, 15 years, the way that fintech and commerce looks in the future is completely different from where it is today. And so we're looking for like the seed stage version of what Drift was several years ago is one example of that. And so again, $158 million fund focus on, on everything from pre-seed to Series A. So it's already closed, right? You already closed that fund, right? The racing event. And examples of companies you already invested in? Yeah, so we've invested in 10 companies so far, actually number 11, hopefully soon as well. And so a couple of companies that we invested in that are public, a company called Neotax, which is building an embedded fintech solution for small businesses and medium-sized businesses to actually do their taxes like on platforms that they, they actually utilize on a day-to-day basis. And so, for example, Neotax works with Mercury, which is a neobank for businesses and is an embedded solution to actually do your taxes all in one place in an automated fashion. And then another company we invested in, uh, actually based in Mexico City, is a company called Mandel, which is doing corporate card expense management, but for like larger enterprises in, in uh, Mexico, Latin. And so more so focus on that, you know, Mercado Libre, the, the Telmex, the Celmex of the world, who are larger enterprises and, and need deeper software and solutions to actually manage their finances. And so both are Series A investments that we did out of Affinity. And then we have a number of other companies that are still in stealth that we'll be announcing pretty soon as well. That's awesome. And so you're investing in companies based in Latin America, right? Yeah, Mandela is based in Mexico City. Uh, Neotax is based in the U.S., but our portfolio today is about 50-50, half in the U.S. and half international. Awesome. Awesome. No, perfect. I, I get a lot of people asking me for like, you know, who should they reach out? So I'll connect you with some of this to get to some deal flow. That'd be great. Mario, it's been a pleasure. We had people in common. We had to meet. Definitely. I'm going to be running into you more and more, I bet, you know in many different places. Congrats on being a role model, on taking huge leaps, taking risks, right? Taking your hustle, right? And your grit from an early age and taking every opportunity that was given to you and you humbly took it and you make people proud, right? So I think this is amazing to see more Latinos with the ability to write checks, right? And believe in people that look more like us, right? So thank you so much for what you're doing and we'll get to see you soon. Thanks for listening to the American Dream Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss when a new episode drops. 
If you like this episode, please leave a six-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about my American Dream mission, subscribe to my newsletter linked in the show notes.